0: Acts chapter 17, I appreciate so much being able to be here with you this evening. And Nicole and I and the girls appreciate being able to be a part of this family. And we're so thankful for that. In Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 24, Paul makes a statement. He says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven... And earth dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed in the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live, and move, and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance... God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Acts chapter 17 is a chapter full of action and activity and information, and it covers a great deal of things in just a few short words. It begins with Paul and Silas coming into Thessalonica, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're converting multitudes of devout Greeks, uh, several of the chief women, but we notice in the beginning of chapter 17, none of the Jews would believe. Verse 4. And because of that unbelief, they caused a problem for uh, Paul, they stirred up the people to riot and they unsuccessfully searched the houses for Paul. They wanted to put an end to his life, but they did find the faithful Jason and the other brethren, Acts 17 verse 6, and they mistreated them. But they were looking for Paul. To save Paul from harm, those brethren sent him along with Silas to Berea by night. They got him out of the city. They snuck him out so as to save his life. After getting to Berea and establishing himself, he began to do what he always did. He preached the gospel. And once again, as he preached the gospel, this message of life, many of the people came to him, the great men and women of the city, and they obeyed the gospel. They heard what he had to say. However, because of their great hatred for the apostle Paul, the Jews followed him also. To Berea, They began to cause problems there. They caused a great trouble for Paul in the city. But the Bereans had proven themselves more noble than those in Thessalonica. Acts 17 verse 13. Again, because of the uproar and the threat against Paul's life, he had to leave the city again. And the brethren sent him away this time to Athens, leaving behind Silas and Timothy. So as Paul waited in Athens for his fellow missionaries, he realized that the city was wholly given to idolatry. And it stirred him up to think that those people were worshipping the creature instead of the Creator, Acts 17, 16. And because of the great passion for Christ that Paul had, he did what he always did, he reasoned. He reasoned with the people in the synagogues and the marketplaces daily, Acts seventeen seventeen. But as he taught about our Lord, the philosophers of the day, they, they came to him and, and they, they began to mock and rebuke Paul. They didn't agree with what he said, and as they questioned him about this resurrection of which he spoke, they took him over to the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill, now the Areopagus was located west of the Acropolis, which was the ancient citadel of Athens, where the Parthenon was located. A very special spot for the Greeks. They uh, uh, met there for their judicial councils, and according to their myths, it was the very place where Ares was judged for killing the son of Poseidon, their false gods. So as Paul stood on that hill, he declared this, Acts 17, he said, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Now the new, the new King James Version says, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. They could do nothing throughout their day without first bringing it before their idol gods and consulting with them. In fact, Paul says you're so religious, you're so superstitious... I came across an altar to the unknown God. And you're not worshiping Him correctly. You don't know who He is. And it was at that point, recorded for us in Acts 17, that Paul introduced those people to the God of heaven. The One who does not dwell in temples built by the hands of men, because He created the world and everything in it, Acts 17, 24. Not only that, but He is not worshipped with the hands of men as if He needed anything from creation. Because He is the sustainer of all life. Paul made the statement, and he explained the purpose of God creating humanity. It was to search Him out, to find out in the very hope that He might be found. Verse 27... Now that background brings us to the passage before us tonight. Do you see a common problem throughout this whole chapter? The Jews would not hear and the Gentiles would not believe. But they had one thing in common. They both needed to repent. They needed to repent of their sins, but they needed to mean it. If it was going to be of any benefit to them. Because God requires true repentance. I've entitled this sermon tonight, We Better Mean It. We Better Mean It. If one has a desire to accomplish any kind of goal, then he has to understand the things concerning that goal. We have to be able to look at what is placed before us and understand the details about it. We have to have a general knowledge of exactly how the thing works or operates so that we can understand enough about it to be able to continue to learn about it. Isn't that normally how it goes? We begin to learn and, and then we gain the knowledge of really just how to learn. We graduate from college and we think that, that we've learned all that we can ever understand and know, but really what that did for us was just simply teach us to learn how to do it. I graduated from the Memphis School of Preaching and really what happened there and what they train us to do is really to learn how to learn. And that's the most important thing. I want us to look at Paul's sermon with that very purpose in mind. Let us come together tonight. Let us reason together so that we can understand exactly what Paul meant when he said repent. What exactly does it mean? And we need to understand that it has to be sincere if it's going to be effective. Now we're going to start with how repentance is described. That's our first point tonight. We're going to notice how repentance is described. First of all, it is described in an intimate and personal way. That's what repentance is, isn't it? Repentance is intimate. It's personal to the individual. We cannot repent for one another. We cannot... Make someone repent of something. On one occasion, Jesus was asked about those Galileans that Herod had or Pilate had murdered, evidently believing that those who were murdered were worse sinners than the other Galileans or else they would not have been murdered. That was a common thought in that time, just much like in Job's life. Job's good friend said, Well, obviously you're guilty of sin or you would not be suffering. Well, Jesus had a reply to that, Luke thirteen three. He said, except you repent, you will also likewise perish. Now remember, let's look at this. Except you repent. That was the statement He made. Everyone must repent on his or her own. We can't be forced, and we've got to mean it if God is going to forgive us. Let's recall Peter's words on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Repentance cannot be done by proxy. No one can repent for us. We just can't do it. We've talked about various religious beliefs in the world, and one, one belief in the world is that Someone may be baptized for someone who has gone on before into eternity. Well, we can't do that. It's a personal thing, right? Repentance is a personal thing that leads us up to baptism. We have to understand that. Now, what are we talking about, though, when we say we've got to mean it? If we repent, we've got to mean it. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm sorry, but... And then they begin to explain to you how your behavior caused them to do all the things that they're apologizing for. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? I don't know that that we really mean that when that happens. A person may say the necessary things for repentance, but do they truly mean them? Or are they trying to take the focus off of themselves because they are not sincere? Now, I'm not indicating that we're to judge the mind of our brethren. That's not what I mean. But, God wants true repentance. He wants us to, to be able to reason together, to use good common sense and understand if what we're saying is something that we truly mean. If we do not do that, we'll be separated from God. It's very clear that that repentance is an intimate thing. It's personal to each of us. But it's not just intimate. True rep- repentance is required and it is also inclusive. Now someone says, wait a minute. We've just been talking for the last several minutes about how repentance is its intimate. It's for the individual. Now you say that it is inclusive. It's intimately inclusive. Right? Maybe we can look at it that way. Let's back up in our passage, and listen to Paul again, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Sin is our greatest problem, and it touches the lives of all people. So all people inclusively have been called by God through the Gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. They've been called to repentance. Sin can affect the lives of even the innocent, can it? Sin knows no boundaries. Sin cares not for the innocent. Satan certainly doesn't, and he is the father of sin. Paul declared, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Of course, he's talking about all those who have come to the knowledge of what right and wrong is. John warned in 1 John eight: if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's no salvation Without repentance. Each individual throughout the world, intimately inclusive, is called to repentance. Christ incorporated the necessity of repentance in the Great Commission. Almost 2,000 years ago, notice His commandment. He told the apostles, Luke 24, 46-47. He said, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And here it is, "...and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem." Without repentance, there is no remission. But without repentance, we're not looking for remission, are we? We're not asking for it. We're not interested in it. God has commanded repentance, and without it we will perish. Now those are some of the ways that repentance is described for us in our passage tonight. But to truly understand what repentance is, we need to understand how it is designed, how it was made, what, what, what uh, characteristics does it hold for us. When a thing's design is considered, we become aware of its contents, Correct? We understand. We're looking at it. We're considering how it was made, or from what it is made. And repentance is no difference. Repentance begins, again, with reason. We want to reason. We want to use good judgment, right? We want to look at something uh, without having first formed an opinion, look at it sort of abstractly. And we want to do like Paul. Paul reasoned with the Athenians. We have to do the same thing. We have to have that same quality in our repentance. We want to do that. We have to understand and be able to recognize exactly what sin is, and that's why we want a reason. We have to understand if we're repenting, we're repenting because of something, right? We're repenting because of a problem. John gave us the definition of sin. So we can know what it is, and so we are able to recognize it. That's where our reasoning skills come in. 1 John 3 verse 4. He wrote, Whosoever commits sin transgresses the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Transgression of whose law? Well, it's the transgression of God's law. If we're going to recognize sin and we're going to repent for breaking God's law, we must first know what His laws are, right? That's where we use our reason. We look at it. The laws of God have always been presented to us in a logical manner. God wants us to be able to understand what He's written. He's provided that for us. God's not the kind of God who would require something out of us and then send us on a wild goose chase trying to find it. He sent us to His Son, And his son said, you can't get to the Father except through me. And then he laid out the plan for that. Let's notice the initial plan of salvation for just a moment and and its reasonableness in the makeup of God's overall plan. Before we can believe in God, what must we first do? Well, it's just logical. We have to hear about Him, right? We have to be taught about God. We're either teaching ourselves through a personal reading of the Bible. We might even study with someone else. Notice what Jesus said in Luke 11, 28. More than that, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. We have to hear the Word of God. That just makes logical sense, doesn't it? God doesn't expect us to know anything unless we're first taught it. God's religion is a taught religion. Before we can repent, we must first believe, right? That's the next logical step. Jesus said, John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe I am He, you will die in your sins. See, that leads us up to this thing we know as repentance. That's just the next logical step. Once the Word of God convicts us, of our sin, we'll better understand exactly what that relationship ought to be with God, right? We understand what we're lacking, and now we're beginning to see where I ought to be going. Notice what Isaiah said when he was convicted of his sin, Isaiah 6 verse 5. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. When Peter was convicted, he He fell at the feet of the Lord and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke 5, verse 8. And we all remember Paul's thoughts on his previous life and the activities that he led. 1 Timothy 1, 15. Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He was convicted of his sin. He understood where he stood. And we must understand true repentance changes and it causes us to reason a different way, right? We look at things a little differently. But isn't that just logical? Have you learned something new in any realm of life and then you come across maybe the way you did it before and now you're recognizing that's not the way it needs to be done? I've used this example, but I remember for years... I. I worked in a paint body shop and I was one of the painters and, and auto body repairmen that stayed busy all the time. Well, the, the boss came to me and said, we need to send you to paint school. I said, send me to paint school. I'll go teach the paint school. I said, I don't need paint school. I'm the best. He said, well, you're going to paint school. I said, okay. I begrudgingly went to paint school. Guess what? I learned some things that I didn't know. What about that? And then, when I would begin to perform that in my work, I would say, hey, this is so much better. This is saving me so much time. Now, I recognized when I was doing it wrong. See, that's what true repentance, it changes the way we reason. We see things in a different light, and we cannot ignore sin. We can't do that. Repentance is designed to change that reason, but it's also designed to change our response to sin, right? When we realize our transgressions, and we will transgress from time to time, we can't use that for a crush, but we have to understand. We have to monitor ourselves. We have to examine ourselves. It ought to cause a reaction within us, right? When we recognize we've done wrong. Much like the reaction Paul had when he went into. Athens, and he saw that the city was wholly given over to idolatry, guess what it did to him? It bothered him. It bothered him. He couldn't stand the thought of it. I was speaking with someone, and they were telling me that they hear, they hear bad language, and that bothers them. I said, good, it's supposed to bother us, right? It ought to bother us. I can remember... The transition in my life, and maybe some of you can too, where things like that started bothering me. I would hear something, and it would just—I would cringe at the the speak or at the actions that I would be witnessing. I can remember that. I can't put a date on it, but I remember the feeling. But that's how it ought to be. That's what true repentance does for us. We see we've turned our life around. Repentance is a military term, by the way, used in the Roman army the equivalent of our modern day about face. They would be marching and then they would repent. They would go in exactly the opposite direction. And that's what we need to do. If we're sinning, or we're living in sin, we're going in exactly the opposite direction of God. So we have to repent, turn back to Him, 180 degrees. If we're going away from God, it's 180 degrees away from God every single time. Paul told the Corinthians, He said, you don't have the proper response to sin. When we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, He said, you're overlooking sin. You're all puffed up. You ought to be sad. You ought to be hurt. It ought to bother you that you have someone living among you that is actively engaged and living in sin, and it's you're not doing it. You don't have the proper response. You're patting yourself on the back, and you're saying, look how much we love this individual. Well, he had to write him a letter. He had to write him a letter. He told him in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. See, he wrote him the letter, the first one. And then he wrote the second one to admonish them and encourage them. You did the right thing. See, repentance changes your reasoning ability, and it changes your response. See, that's put out for us plainly in the letters to Corinth. They had a man that was living in fornication. They were overlooking it. Paul wrote a letter. He chastised them for that. He preached to them the words of God, and they repented. They changed their reasoning, and they responded differently. Amen. That's exactly what repentance is all about. Have you ever thought about the distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow as Paul talks about it? Now there are a lot of ways to tell the difference, but I want to notice an example. I remember years ago when we were working with the Wheeler Hill congregation, I would go visit and I was sitting on the front porch one spring and with, a, with a, uh, an older man and we were looking out over his yard and his garden and I can remember clearly he used to grow all kinds of sunflowers and his getting ready and they were kind of coming up a little bit and and I noticed that he had a nice weed eater sitting beside the porch. See and I was in the process of ordering one. I was gonna to have to order a weed eater. And I was looking down and I told him, I said, You know, when you when you turn around, I may just get that weed eater and take it with me. He laughed. He said, Well if you need it, you take it. Well I thought about this example. What if What if you're sitting on the porch and you're you're enjoying a conversation? Your friend gets up and goes in to get a drink of water, and you put the weed eater in the bed of your truck. Well, you drive off, and uh, by the time you get home, you sit around there for a little while, then you get a phone call, and it's your friend, and he says, I saw you steal my weed eater. Now, I didn't want to say anything because I wanted to see if you'd do the right thing. Well, are you sorry for that? Well, sure, I'm sorry for it. Well, I got caught. Right? It didn't work out for me. It didn't turn out the way I wanted it to turn out. I'm certainly... But is it godly sorrow? Well, it doesn't sound like godly sorrow, does it? Now, on the other hand, what if you, you take the weed eater and by the time you get home, you've been thinking about it all the way back up onto the, onto the mountain and, and you get home and you call your friend. You say, hey, I stole your weed eater. I'm going to bring it back and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Is that godly sorrow? I think so. See, you do it because you realize you've done something. What does repentance do? Changes the way I reason. Changes my response to sin. But that's the way it's designed. That's its purpose, right? We need to understand that. God's smart. He knows exactly what He's doing, right? But I think the thing that lies at the heart of repentance is a change in one's resolve, right? Right? I think that may be the greatest design of it. When I resolve to no longer sin, I think that's true repentance. I think at that point God understands you love Jesus with all your heart. You're going to do exactly what He wants you to do. It doesn't matter what it is. You're going to do what He wants. And we're going to live each day resolving not to sin, but we're going to make a mistake or two along the way, but we're going to resolve to repent of it. We're going to resolve to recognize it. And our response is going to be different because we're reasoning in a different way. See, we have to understand also, and I think this is a major point that some people may misunderstand, God doesn't want someone to repent who has nothing of which to repent. Have you ever heard someone make a statement and they say, if I've done anything wrong, I want God to forgive me. Someone responds to the Lord's invitation and they say, If I've done something wrong, I want the congregation to forgive me for that. Now what's the problem with that statement? Well, I know if I've done something wrong. Now granted, maybe I've done something I'm not aware of. But then it is the responsibility of someone to come to me and tell me that. But I'm not going to move forward and repent of something of which I'm not aware. If I have done something, well, did I do something or not? See, we misunderstand confession sometimes. We're not the Catholic church. We don't require someone to come up and reveal all the things that they've done in their lives. But they have to own the sin, though, right? We have to to admit, I've done wrong. The Lord knows what it is. Perhaps some in the audience may know what it is. And so I want forgiveness of that. Confession is not revelation, but we still have to own the sin. And never, in my, in my belief, as I read this, does God want to hear, if I've done something, now we've either done it or we haven't. If we have, God's, God expects us to repent in the proper way. Maybe we've done something publicly. Let's repent publicly. If it's privately, let's repent privately. Let's take care of that sin, Right? Repentance is designed to change our reasoning, to change our response, and to cause us to have resolve. That's that's what repentance is all about. Now we've noticed two things about repentance. We've noticed how it's described. We've noticed how it's designed. Now I want us to conclude with our third point. How is it determined who repents and who doesn't? The Holy Spirit determines if we need repentance, right? It is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about repentance. John 16, 7-11. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's His part in the overall plan of God. Now that doesn't indicate that He comes to us personally and in a very private way and encourages us to repent, whether an alien sinner who's never obeyed the gospel or whether someone who has obeyed the gospel, perhaps they've fallen away. How does He do it? Well, He does it through the written Word, through the inspired written Word. He left it for us, right? It's been recorded for us. John told the The apostles, or uh, excuse me, Jesus told the apostles prior to going back to heaven, He said, the Comforter will come. I'm going to send Him. He's not going to speak of Himself. He's going to speak of Me, and He's going to guide you into all truth. And those men wrote that down. Peter said, He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. There's nothing outside of this written Word that we can learn that God wants us to learn. Have you ever thought about what do we know about God? What do we know about the Holy Spirit? What do we know about Christ that we did not learn in the written Word? Is there anything? The Holy Spirit's not talking to us personally. He's given us the message. All we have to do is look at it. He talks to us that way. Notice again the context of Jesus prior to His ascension. Luke twenty four forty five through 47. Then opened He their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus gave them the proper understanding. He gave them what they needed so they could comprehend the inspired words of the old prophets from the Old Testament. He gave them the necessary qualities that they needed so they could write down the uh, the uh inspiration and the revelation that Jesus gave them that the Holy Spirit led them in when they were living on this earth. He gave it to them. They understood. And they wrote it down and we can understand it. We don't need an additional anything. Can we use... Study helps. I use them all the time, but I rely on this, and this is all we need. Concerning Nineveh, Jesus said this: Matthew twelve forty one. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The Ethiopian eunuch came to the knowledge that he needed to repent. Whatever it was that Philip taught that man, it had to do with Jesus. Notice John 8, 35. Philip opened his mouth and began at the same Scripture and preached unto him Jesus. What was the end result? The man confessed. He would have never confessed if he hadn't repented. He confessed. He went down into the water. He was immersed for the forgiveness of sin. So whatever it was Philip told him to do, it was about Jesus. And then he went on his way rejoicing. Hey, when we rightly divide the Word of God, we begin to understand repentance a little better. And we can determine by it, or determine by what is written, if we need to repent or not. I want to notice also, Not just the Spirit, but godly sorrow plays a part in repentance. We've already talked about that a little bit. But the thing we need to understand is godly sorrow in and of itself is not repentance. Some people believe it is. Just because we feel bad about something, we feel guilty about something, that doesn't mean we've repented. We still need to do something. We can feel bad about stealing the neighbor's mule, but we've got to take it back, right? We've got to take it back. Paul pointed out godly sorrow is that which leads one to repentance. Notice what he said. Second Corinthians seven eight through ten. He said, "For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it." He's talking about the first letter he sent where he rebuked them. Though I did regret it. Now let's understand what he means. He said, "I sent you a letter. I don't regret it, but I did regret. What did he regret? He regretted that they were hurt." He didn't want them to be hurt, but He wanted them to be saved. He said, For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And because of His great love for them, He was sorry that their sin resulted in their understanding and being hurt for God and being hurt because of their actions when they realized what they were engaged in. But it was that great love that caused Him to reprimand them in the first place. Why? He wants them or wanted them to be saved. That's one of the problems, I think, that we experience in the church today. Things happen and often we overlook it, not because we want to disobey God, but because we do have soft hearts. We do love one another. But see, we need to get a handle on that love. And we need to love in the proper way, right? We can have an improper love for someone. We can refuse to rebuke someone for something they do out of not wanting to hurt them more than what they've already experienced, but in the end, do do you want to stand next to that person in the judgment and and then look over and say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you rebuke me for that so I would have had an opportunity to repent? So I could change the way I reasoned. So I could change my response. Too often, we worry about other people's feelings instead of God's feelings, Right? I've seen that and you have too. The writer of Hebrews warned, Hebrews six, If they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put Him to an open shame. When we sin and we know we're doing wrong, it's as if we're crucifying Jesus again. The very knowledge of that ought to cause us to repent. And we should always be thoughtful about the judgment that is to come. Acts 17.31, after making all those beautiful statements about God, Paul ended on that thought. Because there's a day coming when he will judge the world. If we're going to live in the glory of heaven instead of eternal torment, we need to repent when it's necessary, right? That happens throughout our lives. That doesn't mean we're, we're weak or we're, we don't love God. That means we do love God. And then we want to be right with Him. John the baptizer demanded that we bring forth therefore fruits worthy or meet for repentance. He said do that. Those who have never obeyed the gospel are in great danger of losing their souls. They need to repent. They need to come forward. They need to dedicate themselves to God. Well, what about those who may have fallen away? They're in the same situation they're in danger of losing their souls. When we fall away, we're in danger of losing our souls. And there's nothing more important than that. Now, we handle those two scenarios differently, right? Initial salvation requires the plan that we talked about. Faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living. Well, when we slip up on that last part, that requires us to make a statement to God. I've sinned. I own the sin. I want to change it. I want to do better. Whether we have to do that publicly or privately, that depends on what we've done, right? But we still need to address the issue and we need to save our very souls. If you need to answer this Lord's invitation tonight, do that as we stand and as we sing.